Good morning, brothers and sisters. So good to be with you this morning to sing together, pray together, and now to open God's Word together. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 41. Mark 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 41. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide underneath the chairs, uh, you can find our sermon passage beginning on page 852 this morning, page 852. Uh, And I say this routinely, but if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can read personally on your own, feel free to just take one of the ones under the chairs uh, as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word because we believe that He has spoken to us by His Word, that it is Uh, without error and authoritative in everything it intends to communicate. Uh, So we think it would be so uh, important for you to have your own copy to read during the week. Uh, So please take one. Uh, If this isn't your first time here this morning, then it's no surprise to you that we are nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This is, in fact, my 44th sermon in the book. Uh, That time has gone by quickly, and uh, I found out When I counted up the number, that total should be 45 sermons, uh, unless the next passage gets extended for some reason. But it's appropriate because it reminds me of the key verse of the entire book, Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That that verse is going to be important for today's sermon. Well, friends, it's no exaggeration to say that we have arrived at the climax of the entire gospel. Uh, the entire book up to this point. Perhaps the climax of the New Testament, and therefore I think we can perhaps even say the Bible itself. Uh, No doubt this passage is familiar to you, as we're going to be looking at the very crucifixion of Jesus this morning. Uh, Having dedicated 43 sermons to the Gospel of Mark up to this point, you are now prepared to read and understand the deep meanings of Uh, what is going on in this passage, but I'd like to just remind you of a few key themes before we read it. Uh, The first is the centrality of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, Uh, that Jesus is God's very and only Son, that He is equally divine in authority and inspiration, yet Jesus as God's Son submits to the will and the plan of the Father. In Mark's gospel, it's one of the primary things that he wants to communicate to his readers. So if you'll remember, way back when we were in chapter 1, the very first verse of the book, Mark 1.1, Mark says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what he calls him. And then later in that chapter, when Jesus is baptized, uh, the heavens tear open and a voice comes from heaven that says, You are my beloved Son. And then about halfway through the book, in chapter 9, Jesus takes a few disciples up onto a mountain. He's transfigured before them. He's standing in his radiance next to Moses and Elijah, and something very similar happens. A voice comes from the heavens that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And in our text this morning, for the first time in the gospel, a human will openly and publicly confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's not just an ordinary human, he happens to be a Gentile, the very soldier in charge of crucifying him. Uh, No human up to this point has openly confessed Jesus as the Son, though Jesus himself has referred to God as his Father 
and he's referred to himself as the son through his teachings and in a, in a parable. And there is one other party that has called him the son of God, and in fact, it is the demons. Uh, they, at uh, multiple times, confessed that he is the son of God whenever they saw him. So from the beginning, throughout, and now here at the end, Jesus' identity as the Son of God is emphasized, and all of that matters for us to understand why his death is significant. Uh, From a historical standpoint, uh, it's a strange close to Jesus' life and ministry. All the amazing things he's done, the great teachings, the authority he's displayed, the influence he's had, and the miracles he's performed... And yet, in the end, he finds himself rejected by his own people, abandoned by his disciples, accused by the Jewish authorities, and executed by the Romans. In the end, Jesus finds himself alone, facing torment. He dies an excruciating death, a shameful death, in fact. Uh, It happened to be the worst possible death one could suffer. Uh, Cicero, uh, a lawyer in ancient Rome, called crucifixion the most cruel and horrifying punishment. He said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts. It's the cross that the Apostle Paul says is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And yet it is unquestionably the central event in the life of Jesus and has become since then the universal logo for Christianity. Uh, Though there have been times in history where it was debated whether or not it was appropriate to have the symbol of a cross uh, in a church, Uh, today in our culture you see it on tattoos and t-shirts all over churches, uh, and it is generally more of a positive symbol. Uh, But in Jesus' time it would be more like a noose or an electric chair. It was a ghastly symbol. Well, our passage this morning is not one that should be read lightly. It's not one that should be read flippantly or quickly, but reverentially and soberly. And with that in mind, let's read our passage together now. But before we do, uh, it's appropriate that we pray one more time and ask the Lord for clarity as we seek to understand the meaning of this passage, as it is so central to the gospel and Christianity as a whole. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you plow our hearts to prepare us to receive the seed, your word. Lord, would you bring clarity to our minds. Would you speak to us uh, through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 15, verses 16 through 41. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak And put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. 
And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This event, uh, the crucifixion, is often summarized, frequently, I would say, summarized and referred to in Christian churches, uh, but it's rarely ever spelled out in detail and meditated on. And part of the reason for that is because it is graphic and painful. Uh, another reason is because many today are quick to emphasize the victory that comes after Christ's death through the resurrection, and uh, therefore I think sometimes the result is we can downplay the sacrifice that it took to win our salvation. Uh, I heard an atheist one time basically say, I don't get it. What's the sacrifice here? If he knew he was going to resurrect in three days, then what's, what's the big idea? It doesn't seem like much of a sacrifice to me. Well, friends, I think that way of thinking it makes me wonder if they actually read a gospel account or if the Christians around them uh, have done a good job explaining what exactly Jesus went through on the cross. The main idea of this passage can be taken from the ironic statement of the chief priests in verse 31. The irony, of course, being that if Jesus had chosen to save himself, then he would have forsaken us. But instead, he chose to be forsaken himself so that we could be saved. So the main idea is that Jesus chose to save others instead of himself, absorbing the wrath of God as a substitute for us. 
Jesus chose to save others instead of himself by absorbing the wrath of God as a substitute for us. And we're going to examine exactly how Jesus did so using the language of Isaiah 53, which we read earlier in the service. So first, we'll see that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Second, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Third, Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Fourth, Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors. All those messianic themes and more are found in this very passage. Uh, I'll repeat each one as I go through them. But my prayer for you this morning is that you would walk away from this text with a greater sense of wonder that Jesus would subject himself to such treatment for lowly sinners like ourselves. So first, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Now Jesus has already been disposed by the Jewish leaders. They sought to kill him very early in the book, as early as chapter 3 in Mark's gospel. And for over a chapter now, we have read the way they have plotted, brought false witnesses against him, beat him during their own council, the Sanhedrin, uh, before bringing him to Pilate, and then when before Pilate, rousing the crowd to yell for him to be crucified. Now with this passage, we see the way Jesus was despised and rejected by men throughout the crucifixion itself. It begins with the Roman soldiers taking Jesus in preparation for him to be crucified back to the portico portico of the governor. And if you look up at verse 15, the verse before our passage, you'll remember that they had already scourged Jesus. Uh, This was a brutal way to prepare someone for crucifixion. And the idea was crucifixion sometimes takes a long time uh, because no vital organs are hit. Uh, It can sometimes take days for someone to die on a cross. And so scourging was a way to weaken the body in advance. It involves stripping someone down, tying them to a post, whipping them multiple times with a whip that had uh, metal and bone pieces at the end, uh, specifically designed like barbs to tear away flesh. Sometimes muscles and bones would be exposed. And it's reported that some even didn't survive the scourging before they were taken to be crucified. We know how much it weakened Jesus because of the fact that he wasn't able to carry the crossbeam that criminals were otherwise required to carry. In verse 21, that's why they have this man Simon of Cyrene come and carry it instead of him. Uh, And Simon's an interesting uh, mention. Uh, You know, on the one hand, it's just describing in detail the the events. Uh, But then he goes on to name his sons, uh, which seems to make it clear that there's a good chance his sons were known in the Christian community that Mark was writing to. Uh, It is, in fact, possible Mark is writing to the church at Rome, and we know from the letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, uh, in chapter 16, he greets someone named Rufus. It's possible this is the very same Rufus. Uh, We don't know for sure because it's a common name, Uh, but it at least points out that these names mentioned were known by the first Christians receiving Mark's record of Jesus' ministry. So the Romans, they took Jesus back. They mocked him and humiliated him by dressing him up. They put a purple cloak around him that 
uh, was the color of royalty, regality. They dress him like a king. Uh, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they uh, mockingly salute him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, which uh, is basically just an adaptation of, of how they would salute Caesar. They would say, Hail, Caesar. But imagine this man, bloody and beaten in front of them, likely hardly able to stand, dressed up, and then kneeling before him, making a mockery. After the Romans have their fun, Jesus is led out to the place of crucifixion outside the city, a place called Golgotha, meaning the place of a skull. Uh, it would basically, it's just a place that people would go to die. There he was crucified. Uh, crucifixions were always done near a main road so that uh, the public would be able to see. That would elevate the amount of shame going on during the events. There he was crucified in verses 29 through 32, the way Jesus was despised by those who passed by, as well as the chief priests who are watching, is clear to us. Now remember that this is the fate that they desired for Jesus. Uh, before Pilate, this is what they convinced the crowd to do. Though Pilate said he was innocent, they convinced the crowd to shout out, crucify him. And so they mock him for what he had said previously, that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Uh, they brought that charge against him in the Sanhedrin trial, but they couldn't agree on it. And now they gloat in front of him for failing to deliver that prophecy, or so they think. Uh, they wag their heads and taunt him, uh, which is mentioned in Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the cross, by the way. We have to admit that the taunting of the chief priests in verse 32 is uh, not so different from the way some critics of Christianity today uh, think. They say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Basically, show us, show us yourself. Where is this power you boasted of? Not so confident now, are you? If you would just show us a little bit, we would believe. Of course, that's not really true. Jesus had already worked plenty of miracles in front of them, and their hearts were hardened. He said that they had ears, but they were deaf. They had eyes, but they were blind to him. Their way of thinking is an entitled way that puts themselves at the center of the universe, demanding the maker, the creator, to prove himself to them. Well, behind those entitled demands is a gross misunderstanding of what God was already doing. In short, this kind of taunting is not open to reason. It's not open to understanding. And those who think this way despise Jesus. It's not so surprising that the chief priests despise Jesus because of their own influence and reputation being at stake. But the shame of Jesus could not be greater than the very criminals crucified alongside him also reviling him, as it says at the end of verse 32. And that leads me to the second point. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Mark tells us this very clearly in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his left and one on his right. And this language, uh, this phrase that Mark uses, harkens back to a story from chapter 10 in the gospel with James and John. Uh, remember they had 
witnessed Jesus's transfiguration up on the mountain. And then later, the next chapter, they make this really bold request to Jesus. They say, we want to sit in the seats of honor on your right hand and your left hand in glory. They wanted to be first in line because they were only thinking about the glory that would come. But Mark describes the moment of great torment in Jesus' life as this glorious moment in which he has someone on his right and left. But they aren't his disciples. They're not great prophets or apostles or kings of old. They are robbers. He's numbered with the transgressors. Uh, our English versions say robbers, by the way, but that's, very, that's a very soft <laughs> translation for the word. Uh, crucifixion was only reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. So most likely, just like Barabbas, these were uh, insurrectionists, and that same word could be used to describe a, a murderer. Uh, so they, the point is, these two crucified next to him are traitors of the state. These are the people that Jesus is associated with at the end of his life. It brings Isaiah's language into light. Physically, Jesus is numbered with other sinners. He's crucified right alongside them. But that's not the only sense that the New Testament talks about uh, to understand Isaiah's prophecy. The Apostle Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Sin was put on Jesus. He was made to be sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, hanged, who is hanged on a tree. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. As a Jew, Jesus made himself cursed by hanging on a cross. And the Lord used a very clear example of what the Jews knew meant to be cursed, to demonstrate that Jesus was meant to receive the curse for us. Now, one, one very easy point of application for us reading this is to look at uh, verse 32, the statement of the chief priests, and to simply say, we need to know our Bibles well if we want to understand the actions and the, and the teachings of Jesus. We must know our Bibles and interpret them carefully. Uh, there are theological realities at play here. Uh, that's why Jesus uh, says what he says about the chief priests at various points. But friends, we have the Spirit. We have all of Scripture at our fingertips. We must know our Bibles thoroughly to interpret them carefully if we're to understand the meaning of things like the crucifixion. So open your heart and mind to the scriptures to be filled. Jesus is numbered with the transgressors in both a physical sense as he hangs in the same space alongside two criminals and in a theological sense as he puts himself in the way of transgressors under the wrath of God. Another way to say it is that he was not only numbered with the transgressors from a human standpoint, but he was punished like a criminal and on, receiving, and on the receiving end of mocking and scorn, he was also numbered with the transgressors by God himself, which leads me to the third point, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, verse 4. 
the greatest cause of the suffering of Jesus is not the gruesome death of crucifixion, as terrible as it was. And I could spend a lot more time in the sermon (laughs) describing it. Uh, You can look up these descriptions yourself. There have been movies made about it. Uh, The Romans knew what they were doing, and it was brutal. But the greatest affliction Jesus faced was not from the Romans or from the Jews or the crowds or the criminals next to him, as much shame as those things would have brought him. It's not the mocking of the soldiers in private or of the chief priests in public. It was the pain of receiving the punishment for sin from God himself. This is clearly seen in two different verses. First, verse 34, where Jesus quotes Psalm 22, crying out to God in his agony. It's not being forsaken by his people that Jesus finds most painful but being forsaken by his very own Father. It's the separation from the perfect fellowship and unity with the Father for a limited time. And we got a taste of of how Jesus felt about this when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane a little while back, when he prayed three times that the Lord would remove his betrayal and his death from him. And yet he still submitted to the will of the Father. First, we see God as the smiter in verse 34. We also see that it's God's wrath poured out on Jesus in verse 37. Look what it says. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, you might not have thought anything about that verse in particular. But Jesus' final moments are very unique. And you can tell something about that by the way Jesus dies and the impact it has on the Roman standing by. Notice he says that when he saw Jesus uh, in this way breathed his last, he has the confession that Jesus surely was the Son of God. So what is it that uh, was impressed upon the soldier? What was unique about the way Jesus died? First, his final breath is unique in this way. Uh, People who were crucified typically did not have the energy or the awareness, or the strength to cry out like this. The immense physical toll that crucifixion takes on the body uh, leaves some unconscious. Uh, Usually death comes from asphyxiation or suffocation. When you think about all that Jesus went through, the beating beforehand, the walking outside the city, the being nailed to the cross, the refusal to drink the wine and myrrh, which uh, which is said to be some kind of a, have the the effect of a narcotic, basically. It was given uh, to those being crucified to try to ease the suffering. Jesus refused it. Some people, in taking so long to die, would have their legs broken so that they would suffocate quicker to speed up the process. But people in these situations, they don't have the physical ability or awareness even to cry out like Jesus did. They're in shock, and not to mention the darkness that occurred in the middle of the day. Mark Mark tells us that there is darkness over the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, uh, which would have been from noon to 3 p.m. We know that he was crucified at 9 a.m., So for three hours in agony and then at noon, 
three hours of darkness before he breathes his last. Uh, Some have said that this could be some kind of eclipse, but we just know because of the time of year that Passover is uh, with the cycles of the moon, it's not really possible, Uh, nor is it likely that this was some kind of uh, dark storm cloud or dust cloud. This is a supernatural darkness covering the land when the sun is at its highest point in the day. It's an unusual darkness covering the area. And just at this moment, Jesus cries out, breathes his last, which even though it had been about six hours, was quicker than most people on the cross. All of this leads to an unusual death that impacts the Roman who happened to be, as the centurion, in charge of crucifying him that day. What perhaps you might not know is that the darkness over the land is actually a prophecy from Amos 8, verse 9. Uh, It says that specifically the Lord would make the earth dark in broad daylight, making the sun go down at noon. But all of this is linked to the identity of Jesus as God's son. All of this is information that Jesus told his disciples would happen to him. These events could only have been known and foretold by someone who shared the very mind of God, someone who had planned out in advance how everything would happen and why. And that's because Jesus' death was planned out by God. It was prepared beforehand. It wasn't some kind of accident or disappointing end to a short three-year ministry. But Jesus' death was not ordinary by any stretch of the imagination. He was an innocent man on the cross. Not only was he innocent, but through the cross, Jesus experienced all the torment that sinners rightly deserve. He took it upon himself so that we might be saved. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners as a ransom that he willingly laid down his life on our behalf so that we might be saved. His death, therefore, was a way of putting his own body on the chopping block on our behalf. He is the shepherd that was struck by God. Through all the fulfillments of Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant. So, friends, how can we apply these facts to our lives? Well, first, if you're a believer, know that suffering you experience is not a result of God directly punishing you for your sins. Now, sin has consequences in life, and we live in a fallen world, so there will be suffering, certainly. But you shouldn't think that God is punishing you directly because you have sinned against Him. Uh, If you believe and if you trust in the death of Christ, everything you owe for your sin was put on Him and nailed to the cross. His work was finished there. So don't let the devil convince you that God is holding your sin against you. Second, rest in God's power over evil. Uh, It's appropriate to grieve evil in the world, and there is much language in the Bible, psalms of lament, uh, that grieve that the wicked prosper, it seems to be, in the world. That injustice sometimes reigns in a fallen 
world. It's appropriate to grieve these things, but we can rest in confidence knowing that God has power over all evil that supersedes it. God takes what is evil in the world and uses it for good. We know that famously in the life of Joseph, whose life was thrown away, it seems, when he was sold into slavery. Later on, uh, he gains the favor of Pharaoh and saves his entire family during a, a famine. And he tells them when they are begging and crying for forgiveness, what you meant for evil, God used for good. But an even greater example of that is Christ on the cross, who was completely innocent, subject to the evil actions of men. And yet God used the wicked actions of the chief priests, the crucifixion of the Romans, all to win forgiveness for sinners. The cross is the ultimate example of bringing about an ultimate good through the greatest evil. And I say greatest evil because Jesus is the only one that was truly innocent. Third point of application. Be comforted by the depth of Christ's love. Just look at what Christ was willing to go through for sinners like us. Uh, Romans 5 verse 8, it was... While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also give us, give us all things with Him? Now, friends, do you see the sacrifice of Jesus in this passage? Uh, the pain and torment He went through for His people. Take comfort in the love of Jesus seen in this passage on the cross. Understanding Christ's death as pre-planned, intentional, begs the question, what was the purpose of Jesus going willingly to such a terrible death? Is it possible that it could have been less terrible? (laughs) Could it have been avoided? Why or why not? I think that brings us to the fourth point. Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. If it is God that has afflicted Christ, primarily through the Roman cross, and if Jesus has no sin in him at all, then for what purpose does the Son of God take upon himself such a punishment, such an abandonment? We've touched already in point two briefly that Jesus was numbered among the transgressors taking on sin upon himself. He was counted to be one of them, treated like one of them, grouped with them. But the primary suffering of the cross is not only physical, but the spiritual separation and abandonment of God. And if that's the case, then for what reason did Jesus willingly present himself to God for? We know that God is is a perfect and just judge. He will not judge unjustly or improperly. So we could say, perhaps from a moral standpoint... In what scenario could Jesus, who was without sin, completely be punished by God as a transgressor and it not be considered unjust? I'm taking this time to spell it out in a lot of different ways because I want you to leave this morning with crystal clarity about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There could be no mistaking it. Christ's death was the Father's plan that Christ submitted to willingly. There could be no doubts that Jesus was sinless. Therefore, his death was meant as payment for the sins of others. He laid down his life 
as a ransom for many so that we could be made righteous. That's what theologians have called the sweet exchange. The sweet exchange. The one who was completely righteous, given the punishment we deserve for our sin. And we who are dead in our trespasses, as Ephesians 2 said, are made alive through Christ's sacrifice. Now, there's many different places throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament especially that I could point to to demonstrate this, uh, as I've already shown you some. But what about in this text specifically? What can we look at to see this intercession for sinners? First, it's the way Jesus prays in verse 34. It's the only way this prayer actually makes sense. Jesus simply would not have been forsaken by God if his death was not done as a payment for others. It's the only way Jesus can justly receive punishment from God if he willingly offers himself, his own life, for his friends. Similarly, the only way the perfect Son of God could be cursed is by taking on the curse that belonged to someone else. He became a curse by hanging on the tree. And in his shame before the Romans, he experienced the effects of the curse brought about by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Think about this for a minute. Adam and Eve, uh, in the Garden of Eden, they sinned against God. They rebelled against him. The Bible is clear that that action plummeted humanity under the curse of sin. It's called the fall. And so all people from Adam and Eve, from that point on, uh, have a fallen nature and rebel against God. Uh, All of our sins testify to that. Sin is when Adam and Eve sin, they are expelled from the garden, cut off from God's presence. And in that event, you'll remember God spoke to them about the curse. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In your pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Sin brought about thorns and thistles. And Jesus symbolically wears the curse of humanity by being crowned with the thorns twisted around his head by the Romans. There's two other clues as to what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. They're both linked to the impression Jesus' death has on the centurion. The first is the three hours of supernatural darkness covering the land. This darkness is not explained by anything else. It's a visible demonstration of God's judgment. Remember that Jesus often referred to hell as the place of outer darkness. Where is Jesus but outside of the city? Not that... God is not present, but it's a place absent of his glorious light, absent of his comforting presence, we could say. This is more than the death of a simple man or more than the death of a moral teacher. The final clue I'll mention is the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom at the moment of Christ's death. Why would Mark put a detail like that in this narrative? I don't know if it occurred to you, but it's not something that the centurion could have witnessed or anyone there could have witnessed being outside the city. It's something that people would have later discovered and put two and two together, recognizing this must have happened at the same time that Christ was 
crucified. I think that's the kind of impact Jesus' death had in the area. But this curtain is uh, significant because of what it represents. Uh, This is a curtain in the temple, and this is no small curtain. Uh, This is not like our shower curtains at home. Uh, Okay, this curtain is a 60-foot tall curtain that is four inches thick. Uh, This could not be torn by a man. Uh, Inscribed on the curtain are the cherubim, uh, fiery angelic beings that are supposed to guard the presence of God from sinful humanity, just like the guard that was placed at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were expelled from it. It's the curtain separating the holiest place in the temple, the place where the presence of God was supposed to sit on top of the mercy seat. It's the very room that one day a year, one man, the high priest, was allowed to enter into to provide a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the nation. Uh, But he couldn't just do it on any day. It was only the day of atonement. And that wasn't all he had to do. He had to first atone for his own sins. There were sacrifices leading up to this event. He walked in with bells around his neck and a rope around his ankle. In case he were to drop dead, they could hear it and pull him out. This is a boundary between God's presence and the people, God's holiness and their sin. The curtain tearing in half, therefore, might as well be the removal of its function and the removal of the entire temple cult. It renders its function useless because the barrier between God and man has been removed, torn from top to bottom. By his death on the cross, Christ opens a way for sinners to God. He has offered a sacrifice once and for all. Therefore, no more sacrifices are necessary. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Friends, the temple curtain tearing is the clearest sign, perhaps next to the resurrection itself, that God accepted Christ's death as a worthy sacrifice and credits the forgiveness to sinners who trust in his work and not our own. And notice Mark clearly describes the direction of the tearing of the curtain from top to bottom. That's because salvation comes from the power of God and not from the power of man. The removing of the veil is a reversal of sin's curse done by God, not by us. That's why we say we're saved by grace through faith not a result of our own work so that we can boast. So friend, if you're trusting in your own goodness, in your own morality, seeking God's favor, hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds at the end, friend, you can never be good enough. Only Christ can. The only one good enough is the man hanging on the cross in our passage. Trust in his goodness and his sacrifice today. Repent of your sins against God and dedicate your life to living with Christ as your Lord. The good news of Jesus is that you can be forgiven no matter the sin in your life. If you have any questions about what that might look like for you in your own life, uh, please talk to someone that you came with or talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk about what that has been like in my own life and what that might look like in your life as well. The gospel is the joyous declaration 
that God is making things new by saving sinners by the ransom of His Son. The good news is we don't have to convince Jesus to go to the cross for us. We don't have to convince Him that we are worth suffering for us. He's already gone willingly out of His love for us. Trust Him and be saved. There's another theological image I want to put in your heads this morning from this text. It's in connection to the temple curtain tearing in two, which, uh, by the way, since I mentioned it at the beginning of the sermon, uh, Mark only used that word, uses that word torn uh, twice in the gospel, and the other time is when the heavens are torn at Jesus' baptism, and the voice declares him to be the Son of God. There's one other significant place in the Bible that the Lord covers the land with darkness. It's the ninth plague against Egypt, which is followed immediately by the tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn. Uh, mind you, this is the very, the very same sequence of events that births the Passover celebration. Uh, the Hebrews are instructed to sacrifice a year-old lamb without blemish, put the blood on their doorposts so that when the Lord comes by to bring the tenth plague, he passes over in judgment. The Hebrews are saved and judgment goes out against the Egyptian as the firstborns of the land are taken. In Egypt, the firstborn is taken to set God's people free. And at Calvary, the firstborn son of God is given as a ransom to free God's people from their sin. Friends, the ultimate application from the cross is this. Trust in Christ's atoning death for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't already, he has opened the way to God. The way into his presence is open to all who believe in him and trust in his works and confess him as Lord. For those of us who have already put our trust in Christ, the application is this. Rest in the finished work of Christ. There is nothing left to atone for. Christ bore the full punishment, and his blood was not poured out so that we would remain in bondage to sin. So rest in the finished work of Christ. Jesus chose to save sinners instead of himself by absorbing the wrath of God as a substitute for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the love of your Son shown to us as he submitted himself to be mocked and scorned, as he took upon himself our transgressions, as he was forsaken by you so that we would not be. Lord, help us to remain confident in your love for us through the actions of your Son, Help us to live in response to Christ's death, believing the assurance he promises to us, and help us to long for the day that Christ returns to bring us to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.